Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Novelist Sophie Kettlecook has ground out another self-regarding, bombastic, and unintelligible work of fiction, this time with the title Get It Right the First Time. What a stupid title. What kind of writer combines such insipid characters with colorless language and a predictable plot? The kind who borrows your snowblower, breaks your snowblower, doesn't fix it or return it, and two winters later calls you to ask if you've by any chance gotten a new snowblower. This is what Sophie Kettlecook did to me, so it's no wonder her novel is so unrelentingly bad. Kion? What is it, Greg? I'm on deadline with this book review. That's what I wanted to discuss with you. What about it? This reads like a personal vendetta instead of engaging with the work itself. You have to talk about the book rather than maligning Sophie Kettlecook as a lying social terrorist. That's good. I can work that in. A well-known lying social terrorist, Kettlecook has written exactly the kind of novel you'd expect from somebody who, upon seeing my dreadlocks, makes a stupid remark about how I'm probably a vegan. Kion. Kettlecook writes the way she walks and talks, a stooped, shuffling, open-mouthed shamble she indubitably mistakes for a hipsterish cool. God, how I hate the way she walks and talks, and therefore this book... No! You're breaking a fundamental, unspoken covenant of criticism that the critic will separate her personal feelings about the author from the work itself. You have to stop this. Okay, I get it. I I really get it. Thank you, Greg. But perhaps I should celebrate the achievement this book represents. For a girl with such bad breath and such squinty eyes... Kettlecook has written something that impressively approximates prose. Is that better? Today on the show, hilarious writer Henry Alford on the job of the critic and the scalping of restaurant reservations and a rich man sending the rest of us on scavenger hunts for cash. And now he sold his place in the Dunkin' Donut line for $2.35. Colin McEnroe. That's the closest thing to reservation scalping I've been able to do so far. I want to be part of this. I want to be. I want to embrace every major trend, including the ones that are eroding the fabric of civilization. So here's my experience. I mean, uh, my experience begins actually with really uh, noticing his name and liking his work. But a lot of times I'm reading something in a magazine or the New York Times without really paying too much attention to who wrote it. And then I'm finding I'm sort of really laughing and then thinking this has a really – interesting voice. Who wrote this? And then like 80% of the time, it's Henry Alford. So, uh, But I go way back with uh, Henry Alford. I mean, not knowing him, but enjoying his work way back to his explosive debut in Spy Magazine, where he would uh, do these little pieces, these kind of what-if pieces, what if the Pope were a dog, uh, and then discovering his collection, um, Municipal Bondage, which uh, we, we might even refer to at some point today, but just a absolutely vital, if you, if you think you've got a lot of really good uh, sort of 20th century and late, uh, late 20th century humor books in your house, you've got to have Municipal Bondage in your collection. His most recent book is Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. Uh, gives us a a lot to talk with him about today. He joins us from the NPR studios in downtown Manhattan. Welcome to our show, Henry Alford. Hello, Colin. Um, so uh, as that introduction suggests, one of the first things we want to talk about is a review that you wrote uh, about a collection by Garrison Keillor. Uh, and, and also uh, not only the review that you wrote, which is an essentially positive review of, of the collection, but then uh, on Facebook, talking talking to people who 
Um, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be the one trying to express the problem, but let me try anyway. That 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 Garrison Keillor has over time written some things that that you don't even really like very much or don't necessarily agree with. Uh, he's also maybe sort of not the hippest kind of uh, pop culture figure in the world these days. Uh, but you thought your job was to just take this book for what it was uh, and and to say what you thought about it, which uh, seems like a pretty reasonable set of assumptions and. Um, and, and I don't know, I'll just even quote a line. And so began the illustrious career of one of the country's most popular amusers, he of the Easter Island countenance and the magisterial straw-flecked prose. Boy, boy, straw-flecked prose is an enviable <laughs> phrase. I, I wish I had thought of that uh, for any purpose. But so anyway, I, I mean, I got the, we got the feeling looking at your Facebook page that you did experience a little bit of blowback for giving Garrison Keillor in a book review what you what amounted to a fair shake, right? I think so. I mean, it, it more than blowback, it was a week of self inquiry, I guess <laughs> I'll say, um, which is, you know, you're given this book by a famous person. Do you review only the book? Do you review the book and the famous person? Do you review the book and the famous person and his well-known show? Um, and yeah, I went for the, the first of those three because my feeling is you keep it very specific to the book. And if the other stuff that's out there circling the ether is germane to what's on the printed page, then, yeah, throw that stuff in. But by and large, it wasn't. And, and I, although I have not read the book, I mean, reading your review and some of the excerpts, it seems as though Garrison Keillor himself is not immune to withering self-examination. I mean, there's this kind of self-indicting paragraph right, right at the end of your review where he sort of talks about, he eventually, eventually, he basically insists that he's not a very good person and gives some <laughs> examples of this. And so that doesn't really give you a lot of room to maneuver. If you did, if you did want to take the hatchet out, he's already taken it to himself. Yeah, although he's chaotic because there is there's a lot of that stuff, but then there are occasional little um, patches of feather ruffling. Mm -hmm. Like he has this famous um, Lake Wobegon story he does called Pontoon Boat, and in the kind of the intro to it in the book, he says it became a nearly perfect 90-minute performance piece. It worked like a precision instrument. The laughs came right on time, and they built toward big boffo laughs at the end, and I could see men and women wheezing. And that's a little <laughs> much, perhaps. I'm killing out there. Don't you understand? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's also, I just don't, I'm not sure uh, comedically if that's a fact. It's, you know, it's like the person who says, let me tell you a great joke. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the expectations are so high as soon as you say that. Whereas if you had just slipped the joke in, I probably would be convulsed with laughter. Oh, absolutely. Actually, it's funny because I've been thinking about your work in connection. I'm teaching a, a four-day humor writing seminar, which is, seems strikes me as an impossible idea anyway, down at the Yale Writers Conference this week. And and so much of your work, like Thurber, like other people, it really is. The, the, the key to the whole thing is to never admit, if possible, that you're doing anything funny. Uh, and, and you do that a lot in your pieces. I mean, you know, you, you write about these these hilarious situations or these catastrophic failures that you're having trying to do stuff without ever really saying, by the way, this is supposed to be funny. Uh, you let us do that that ourselves, and I think that's sort of the preferred method. But we should oh, all, thanks. Yeah, we should also say no. that. I mean, yeah, go ahead. 
Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that. I mean, that's my own personal preference. Yeah, for the the deadpan rather than the the heavy sell. Right. Um, well, you know, the the thing that made this complicated, I think, for you to a certain degree, were I mean, some pieces that he'd written quite a few years ago now in Salon, where I mean, uh, he had this advice column where. People would write in with uh, he seemed to be especially tough on atheists or people who were about to marry atheists. Uh, I've got one. Right. I've got one where the woman was about to she loved this guy, uh, but he was um, an atheist and and maybe an anarchist. Yeah, he's an atheist anarchist. And and she's got this very Christian family. And uh, what should he do? Uh, What what should he read? She should give him something to read. And Keeler writes back. Yes. I'd suggest the sacred text. I know I can't do an impersonation. That would be horrible. Yes, I'd suggest the sacred text of your religion, and I'd suggest that your sweetie read them. He can be an atheist, anarchist on his own time, but if he wants to marry you, he's got to marry your family, and he should know the religion and be comfortable around it and be able to hear it talked about. If you were farmers, he should know from dandelions, right? So get him on the ball. Atheist anarchism is a refuge for the immature and indolent. Smoke him out. Um, and then he had this sort of wandering, kind of hard to sort of even figure out where he was going uh, uh, piece uh, also in Salon, I think, about gay parenting. And he writes, the country has come to accept stereotypical gay men, sardonic fellows with fussy hair who live in over-decorated apartments with a striped sofa and a small weird dog and who worship campy performers and go in for the flamboyance now and then themselves. If they want to be accepted as couples and daddies, however, the flamboyance may have to be brought under control. Parents are supposed to stand in back and not wear chartreuse pants and black polka dot shirts that's for the kids. It's their show. I assume things like this are why you maybe have engaged in a in an internal struggle with yourself about how positive to be about Garrison Keillor. <laughs> no, exactly. That I mean, that one about the yeah the men in their over decorated apartments that really hit home. I mean, there there is this um, streak in him of. Uh, for lack of better words, of of an old fart, um, that as he's gotten older, there is a little bit more of an unyielding uh, nature. Which brings me to my next point. This is his book is a book with five fart jokes in it. One of which runs: <laughs> Men fart more than women because women don't keep their mouths shut long enough for the pressure to build up. I mean, to my mind, you know, that's a joke whose demographic is really limited to eight-year-old boys in 1959. Um, You know, that's the only person who's going to find that 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 remotely amusing. So, yeah, that's a weird – it's not what we come to think of this wonderfully genial, folksy, popular entertainer. Um, all of which you pointed out in the in the review, but also just pulling out some real instances of, of really felicitous prose on his part, and and some genuinely uh, funny observations there too. Did you did you really get much pressure back at you, or did all that come from within? Was it basically self flagellation as opposed to extra flagellation? It was pure. It was purely self flagellation, and and part of it had to do with you know the fact that I'm sort of half a humorist and half a journalist, mm-hmm. and so uh, being very flattered by this plum assignment to review, you know, the person who's probably the second most pop, you know, maybe David Sedaris is a bigger deal. I don't know, but that I had to think, ask myself, well. Did they ask me because they're hoping someone's going to bring up the gay stuff? Mm. And I should add that, you know, I'm gay. So, of course, that 
you know, that passage that you read is is something that was emailed around and, and that I was familiar with. Um, but again, no, I, in the, at the end of the day, I thought, how, you know, how would I want to be treated? And I wouldn't. Yeah, I don't think I didn't think that that stuff that was in his salon column uh, was important to to bring up. Yeah, that particular passage and that particular piece attracted the wrath of Dan Savage, and you're not going to win that one. (laughs) At that point, it really is. You know, you're in the gladiator ring with you know with somebody bigger and tougher and meaner than you're not going to win that one. Um, Yeah, exactly. So go after the fart jokes, right? Exactly. Stay stay with those. Uh, It's a and so I mean, and all of this. I mean, you had to filter all of these questions through the fact that you are currently. Uh, an expert on manners. Uh, and so, I mean, manners and criticism aren't, don't necessarily march hand in hand, but neither are they entirely alienated from one another. Right. It's true. And also, I don't, you know, I like to think that I'm, that I write about manners, but that I, but the, that I don't have to have exceptional <laughs> manners myself. More of a Larry David approach, right. perhaps. Yeah. You can even convince yeah. that, condense that. I write about manners, but I don't have to have them. <laughs> exactly. Um, listen, we've got a lot of things that we want to talk about today, uh, including, uh, actually, well, we can go into a, a thing about manners. One thing I sent uh, to Henry over the weekend. We're going to have to take a break pretty soon. Matter of fact, why don't we take the break now? We'll come back with this uh, unattractive world of restaurant reservation scalping, as if we needed another unattractive element to our, our daily lives. Uh, has your family tried them powder milk? Has your family tried them powder milk? Well, if your family's tried them all, you know you're satisfied them. There's a real hot item powder milk. All right, we're back. We're back with Henry Alford, uh, and uh, we're so lucky to have Henry Alford. There was so much to talk about. We decided to schedule him for the entire show. Why not? So the, in the New York Times, uh, there, uh, there came a piece um, last week uh, about this practice of essentially scalping restaurant reservations. I'll read a little bit. Nowhere is the competition for tables more cutthroat than in New York City, where a black market in restaurant reservations already exists online. But since February, several new apps have taken the fight to the streets. Zervu shout Killer Resi and starting Monday Resi are all, or maybe Resi, I don't know, are all striving to become the favored portal for people willing to pay a premium to get into the best restaurants at the last minute via a few taps on their mobile devices. Many restaurants already pay to manage reservations through Open Table. Uh, in the well, we can skip over all that part. Uh, but for restaurateurs, even those who demand six dollars for a baked potato to a company of forty-eight dollars steak, charging patrons for reservations feels like touching the third rail. Customers howled when airlines began imposing fees for checked bags and when professional sports teams started charging more for tickets to better games. Still, those premiums are now entrenched in the marketplace. Whether diners and restaurateurs will play along is unclear. Well, Henry Alford, as an expert in manners, we could you could probably say that may be unclear, but you probably have a certain amount of clarity about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing for humankind. It's complicated because, you know, is it the breakdown of the service economy or is it the apotheosis of it? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I have noticed, though, that, you know, when you go to a, a crowded restaurant now, um, they'll say, yeah, you can have the table, but we need it back at 830. <laughs> you know, just putting this ticking yeah. time bomb on your meal. And, yeah, it strikes me yeah. as – this this pay for rest, restaurant reservations thing, it's like another 
service that that we don't really need a service for i mean do we need a sleep concierge at a hotel do we need to you know uh you can pay someone to like check in your bags at the airport for you there are just all these things now that um that are catering to the elite well yeah but i think there are some differences too between some of those examples because you can you can pay somebody to check in your bags for you or you can check in your bags but at some of these restaurants they're probably probably not the kinds of restaurants that i would ever try to go to anyway because i'm so unfashionable at some of these restaurants it sounds as though either you play ball with these guys who are they are, in effect, scalping restaurant reservations. They are buying up restaurant reservations. Uh, right. And, and you, so you either you buy them from us or you go eat someplace else, buddy. And that seems yeah. a little different somehow, sort of squeezing us out that way. Right. It, that it is an, it's an either-or situation. It's true. But it is – yeah, it's happening in this whole culture of um, – of kind of fierceness, like uh, my boyfriend and I went to this of uh, the very high end French restaurant Le Bernardin for my birthday mm-hmm. as a splurge, and my birthday's the day before uh, Valentine's Day, so it's it can be a tricky uh, night to get a restaurant reservation. Um, and this restaurant wanted us to fax, not email, fax a credit card uh, <laughs> and a signature and then if we didn't show up it was going to cost us $50 per person now that's not a, you know you're not just going to that restaurant you're marrying that restaurant right I mean I'm amazed they didn't want a letter of reservation as well <laughs> exactly uh, I mean a letter of reference but well, please tell me they didn't tell you but we need the table back at 8.30 Mr. Alfred they did not they did not do that <laughs> I, I can't believe anybody's well, done that except I, it is sort of true that restaurants they do meter out things a little bit more you know like have you noticed somebody brought this up on Saturday night and it's sort of true have you noticed that these days when you go to a restaurant they rather than offer you like a basket of bread they come along they're holding this basket of bread and they have tongs and sometimes they'll say yeah. <laughs> would you like this kind of bread or that kind of bread but you you can't have as much bread as you want you can have as much bread as they're willing to give you with their tongs yeah, exactly. And then the water's not on the table. Yeah. Very often, salt and pepper's no longer on the table. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there is. This. And you know why that is? It's because people take a long time salting and peppering their food, and then they can't turn the table over by 8.30. So, I mean. Exactly. That, that's that got to add like 45 seconds to a meal. People eat two, pieces tragedy. Of, they eat two pieces of bread. Once again, the clock is running the entire time. <laughs> Um. <laughs> the only thing, you know, the one possible upside I can see here is that, you know, sometimes um, there, there's a cause and effect uh, exchange in the culture. Like, it's interesting to me that um, going to the movies became obnoxious and wearisome right at the same time that the dominant cultural form, you know, the form that everyone talks about is television mm-hmm. now. So that maybe if, you know, in the same way, if if restaurants go under, if they become so unpleasant that, that people stop going to them, maybe something else will spring up um, for for food procurement. And <laughs> me... I'm looking at the Girl Scouts. The Girl I'm Scouts? I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking cookies are not enough, mm. that these ladies could branch out, you know, the Girl Scout meals, Girl Scout chicken tetrazzini. 
Although then you would have uh, the problem of your coworkers or whoever else you know exi- exerts this kind of pressure showing up at your desk saying, "Would you like to order some turkey tetrazzini from my daughter, <laughs> who is not here right now?" By the way, I am here in by proxy for my daughter. How much turkey turkey tetrazzini can I write you down for? Uh, and I will levy only a $5 charge for this <laughs> transaction. Exactly. Hey, as we, we're, we're skittering along here through our topics, but uh, one that uh, Henry wanted to talk about today that I think does sort of fit in somehow or other to this sickness of our, civiliz- our civilization theme uh, that, that is suggested, to me anyway, by people who are scalping restaurant reservations. And that is, uh, for the last few weeks, a Palo Alto-based re- real estate developer and investor, Jason Busey, has been hiding... <laughs> I can barely read this. Has been hiding envelopes full of cash, a total of ten thousand to fifteen thousand in increments of two hundred and fifty or more around California, and then tweeting clues about their locations under the handle at Hidden Cash. He was doing it anonymously, and then uh, the Crusading Journalism Organization Inside Edition figured out uh, who it was, or maybe he told them. Who knows? Uh, And now he's uh, he's going to other places: Houston, Las Vegas, Mexico, Chicago, and yes, New York City, where people would hardly ever get competitive or chaotic about something like two hundred fifty dollars sitting somewhere with a lot of other people trying to figure out where that was. So I, I hand the conversational baton now to you, Henry Alford. Well, I, I guess the question that emerges here, of course, is, you know, is this micro-investing or is it dementia? Um, and I would argue like the song. latter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just – it's such misplaced charity. Um, you know, the, the great Southern humorist Roy Blunt once wrote a, an essay called uh, How to Fix the Southern De- – How to Fix the Federal Deficit. Mm-hmm. And it had just two sentences and it was, buy a roll of stamps. And leave them out on the throw counter. Them, yeah. or throw throw the them away. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's actually, you know, by comparison, I think that's a much um, a much smarter idea because – yeah, I mean this – think of all the great things you could do with this money. Um, but instead, all he's doing is he's rewarding people who are on Twitter all day. You know, he's rewarding the board. I used to be friends with this writer. He's well, – I would, would still be, but he, he left us. But his name is Fred File, and he was a terrific writer. And he had this phrase, end of the world fun for you and me. And, and you know, he talked about those kinds of short stories. I was emailing you today about Donald Barthelme and how he would write these short stories in which people would be up having a party in a penthouse. And down on the street, civilization would be completely breaking down and there would be horrible things going on. And up in the penthouse, the party would be getting better. The drugs would be getting harder. The sex would be getting more licentious because the end of the world was coming, you know? And to me, this yeah. feels a little bit like that. It's kind of like everything's kind of falling apart. I'm rich. I think I'll put $250 out as bait, basically, and then tweet clues to people and see what they do. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I no, really it feels very be, dystopic. Yeah. And like he's trying or to amuse himself. Yeah, no, exactly. Or it, I, I was getting kind of a, um, like a Paul Verhoeven movie yeah. vibe. <laughs> Although I guess, you know, then you would want like a giant insect who's covering all the envelopes of cash with a foamy mouth spit. And, and I um, mean, I guess in some places already there have been things approaching riots, right? I mean, like a lot of people converge on this place where they think the money is. Yeah, there was uh, at the Empire Center shopping mall in Burbank, apparently people were climbing bus stops and jumping out of cars. And yes, I mean, it is always amusing to see 
fellow humans trade their dignity for a relatively small amount of cash. Um, And yet, you know, this guy – oh, we should add that this guy has said in interviews that he he would like for this to become a movement, (laughs) that he he sees this as like a, you know, a logical and and a good form of charity. So that's why I think it's important that we we nip it in the bud and that we point out the errors of his ways to him. Well, first of all, if you can't incite – incite the breakdown of civilization in Burbank, you're not even trying, right? I mean, I mean, that's like, you don't even get points, I don't think, for inciting the breakdown of civilization in Burbank, California. <laughs> How for, could they tell? Exactly. How could they tell? Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, one tiny little tap of a shove, and, and it, it tips right over anyway. It doesn't seem like that much. Yeah, and it's hard to, it's hard to figure out even given the things that this man has said, what principle it is that he's invoking. I mean, this is a little bit harder edge than, say, pay it forward, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you're not kidding. Right. And it'd be so easy. I mean, even if he does have to do this thing, why not add a little element of skill or of of payback? Like, you know, hide these envelopes of cash in the garbage and then make people sort through the garbage (laughs) and pull out the recyclable items. Well, that would be good. Hey, yeah, add a green component. Well, yeah. well, well some of us, the, the final thing that we're going to talk about, and we're going to have a little bit of a fundraising segment um, where uh, you can uh, hopefully contribute to WNPR, and Henry will be humming, is this, what was the song title? Is, is this something or is it dementia? What's the name of this, this, this song that we just came up with? <laughs> is this micro-investing or, or is, is it, it dementia? dementia? It's, it's a Cole Porter tune. Um, <laughs> all right. So, and, but when we come back, we're going to talk about another aspect of this. But, you know, um, it does strike me. Oh, I can't even. Oh, I do. I have a minute to finish my thought. Um, that this there's a little bit of a reality game to this, right? I mean, this guy probably watches The Great Race or whatever these shows are and thinks, oh, why can't I jerk people around just the way network television does, right? Yeah, mean, is there some yeah. element, element, element of that there, do you think? Definitely. He wants to be Mark Burnett. That's a good, <laughs> I think that's a really good read. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to take a quick break here. There will be a small, it won't last very long. Don't get impatient. Don't change the channel. I'm very lovely people over the Pledge Room uh, will talk to you. And if you pledge during this show, people think that you like this show. That's probably in some way a good thing. When we come back, more Henry Alford. His most recent book is Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. Cash moves everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. And considering the amount of your pledge to WNPR, please factor in the money we have to pay somebody famous every day to play the part of Bill Curry. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Lily Tyson. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by The Hound. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff celebrating Father's Day with Kim and Kanye, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we are live from the International Festival of Arts and Ideas in New Haven. And now, back to Colin. And pancakes. Um, okay, before we go back to Henry Alford, because I'm, I'm, 
so excited uh, at a fanboy level to have Henry Alford on my show today. I will forget to do this. So we have a little sort of breaking news on Friday. You may have heard us talk about this um, somewhat problematic idea of staging the entire Wagner ring cycle here uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, the, the Beirut of New England, apparently, uh, but using digital orchestration as opposed to actually real instruments. And this is occasion quite a, an outcry. So from the uh, website of the Hartford Wagner Festival, uh, we see the posting. It is with great sadness that we must announce that the 2014 production of Das Rheingold has been postponed until next year due to the vicious and coordinated attacks on the Hartford Wagner Festival by the American Federation of Musicians, which have forced the resignations of our music director and two of our performers with threats of loss of future work. We continue to support all our local musicians, as we have stated from the beginnings of our project, and we hope that our patrons will continue to support them as well. So um, there you have it. Um, it's, by the way, not our fault, although the guy who runs this with <laughs> upset with the tone of our show on Friday. This is not our fault. It's the vicious and coordinated uh, coordinated attacks by other people. Uh, Anyway, you heard it here first. That was the main thing. So uh, Henry Alford is with us uh, by all of his books, basically, and then every time he writes something, you should read it. Uh, But if you want to get a little bit more specific or your budget is limited, uh, you can start with his most recent book, Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. He's joining joining us from the NPR studios in uh, Midtown uh, Manhattan. Uh, And so, Henry, one of the other things I sent you as we were getting ready today for today's show was a column that you, of course, had already read. It was Hank Bruni's column. It was about sort of what's happening with college admission essays. Uh, And uh, I'll just be, I'll I'll read to the rest of them the unforgettable beginning to this essay. I mean, really, as the journalism awards are given out at the end of 2014, best opening anecdote, I think, should probably go to Frank Bruni. Uh, The Yale applicant had terrific test scores. She had fantastic grades. As one of Yale's admissions officers, Michael Motto, leafed through her application. He found himself more and more impressed. Then he got to her essay. As he remembers it, she mentioned a French teacher she greatly admired. She described their one-on-one conversation at the end of a school day. And then this detail. During their talk, with an urge to go to the bathroom, when an urge to the bathroom could no longer be denied, she decided not to interrupt the teacher or exit the room. She simply urinated on herself. Her point was that she was not going to pull herself away from an intellectually stimulating conversation just to meet a physical need, said Motto, who later left Yale and founded Apply High, a firm that guides students through the admissions process, which, of course, ties into our conversation about uh, restaurant reservation scalping, just another vendor you have to deal with instead of whoever it is you're really trying to deal with. But that's a separate thing. So um, and then I'll just also just to set Henry up here, I'll read the the nut graph, as they say. He's, He's talking to various other people in the booming admissions counseling business. And it says that they try to steer students away from excessively and awkwardly naked testimonials, which can raise red flags about students' emotional stability and about their judgment. All right, Mr. Manners, uh, take it away. (laughs) Well, I'm embarrassed to say I sort of love the anecdote. I mean, I, <laughs> here we are all talking about it. I, w- I would have let her in. That was the whole know? purpose I, of the fundraising break, by the way, Henry, so that you yeah. wouldn't have to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, you know, as any creative writing teacher will tell you, you know, use, a, use vivid language, <laughs> you know, make the stakes really high. Write what you know. Uh, Write what you know, and she's done that all in spades. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the fuss is. Well, I mean, it, it it is hard to sort of imagine 
you know, putting oneself in the moccasins of the admissions uh, board or the admissions counselor, it's hard to look at that and say, that's who we, we need that person here. That person yeah. who will go to the bathroom on herself rather than interrupt. <laughs> we, we don't have enough people who are voluntarily incontinent <laughs> in this campus right now. In terms of our diversity targets, that's a big one. Yeah, let's put her in a room of of other of densely packed other young people. Um, no, obviously it's a it's a it's a questionable thing to include such uh, such an act of of TMI as they say in an essay. Um, it's uh, uh, well. Uh, well, the question is: Does it come from the desire to stand out and be remembered? Or is it because of James Fry and A Thousand Little Pieces or whatever that book's called and, 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 and the Oprahization of culture and reality show uh, you mentioned in, in our email, reality shows, that people sort of think this is really how we, you communicate about yourself? Yeah. No, I think that, that all that stuff is at play, that you know you watch these reality shows and it's very clear that um, the, the good egg is not getting much screen time but the bad egg is is going to get his own spin-off series so yeah that i think that it's easy particularly for a young person to sort of confuse you know what's what's memorable and vivid and flashy with what's thoughtful and and meaningful and i think also we've come to see ourselves as as a society as one big huge you know, populated copy of the DSM-5, right? I mean, we all are are beginning to think of ourselves in terms of these afflictions that we might have. So in the Bruni column, I mean, there's one person who, who talks about having something called cyclical vomiting syndrome. Once again, why you would point that out in your college admission essay? Right. Because there's, enough, crazy. there's not enough people vomiting on college campuses already. <laughs> That's like practically all people do their <laughs> freshman year. Um <laughs> It's true, um, yeah, and and it's a um, it's it's just a it's an odd impulse to yeah to to want to um, pimp that aspect of your personality, um, but uh, and interestingly, none of those three examples that he that he gives in the essay, none of those three people get into their the schools of their choice. <laughs> So there's a lesson learned. I, it does remind me, and it's worth going back to look at if you can find it. There's a an, essay, an episode of 30 Rock where Tina Fey takes some kind of drug that Alec Baldwin's given her, uh, and she's on an airplane, and she hallucinates that the person in the next seat is Oprah, and she just starts talking. She says, I hate my feet. I kissed a girl in camp, and then she drowned. And she, and she like, just you know, is, is talking, talking that way, and then she looks at Oprah for a second and goes, wait a minute, I think there's some more stuff coming, you know, as if she actually is going to vomit. And I think that's who we are. We're the people of the stuff now. You have to have stuff that you can just sort of vomit up about yourself. You've it's got- true. And and then I th- and I also think at, at this, you know, at the same time that people, per- especially young people, have gotten much more savvy about um, – uh, sort of broadcasting their what makes them alternative or or what gives them a minority status it says the the guest who said that he was gay fifteen minutes ago on air um no that yeah that people are um they're they're just very fast to get that stuff out in the air i have a uh, uh, i know a kid who applied to wesleyan and she's a a student at a you know sort of a prestigious new york city school and she said 
uh, Wesleyan only takes four kids from my school, but 12 of us are, are applying, and one of the 12 is being raised by a single working mother who is blind. Yeah. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, when I was applying to college, I didn't know any of that stuff. Um, but I think the numbers are such that, yeah, kids, you know, everyone knows the odds and and you got to be you got to be a little sharper. So, um, Henry Alford, as we're, we're running out of time here, but I, I, I'm, I has to have to ask you, since you do have Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That, a modern guide to manners out. Are people now asking you to adjudicate manners questions for you? Is this like a new thing for you? It comes up. It yeah. does come up. Yeah, occasionally. And do I feel like a jerk sometimes? Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's that's not always a lovely thing. Sometimes it's a lovely thing. Um, yeah, it depends. Um, yeah, it depends how it comes up. Yeah, so I have one for you. All right. Okay. okay. Hit me. Um, Hit me. It came up yesterday. So uh, the issue is when is this is sort of half manners and half business practice but okay. so so we pulled up in front of an establishment yesterday uh and it it was 4:25 on a sunday afternoon and it uh, we looked at the hours on the door and it said closing time 4:30 and i said to everybody else in the car we're going to be their last customer of the day except that they we weren't because they were they were already in the process of closing and i actually think this is something that's become more common that you know when it gets to be the close to the and this also may be an east coast thing i mean in the south in the midwest they'd keep the place open for an extra hour or something you know, just to oblige you and make you feel better but on the east coast it's kind of like you know at the fish store they start taking all the fish off the ice about you know 20 minutes before they're going to close and, <laughs> and they just start putting things away no matter what kind of store it is they start getting ready to leave you know, when it says that they close at 4.30, what they really mean is we're leaving at 4.30. So we're going to do everything we have to do uh, to get ready to leave right now. So don't plan on getting an iced latte from us, you know, five minutes before our closing time. All right. You're, yeah. you're the manners expert. You you react to that one. You are. No, you as the customer are totally in the right uh, that they should not be doing that. But might I point out to you, Colin, that there are probably apps that could help you with this <laughs> conundrum. And they probably have names like Zervu, Shout, Killer Rezzy, Rezzy. Um, yeah. No, I, it, it is it is really wrong. But I have to say, to me, the bigger wrong is the, the flagrant use of – um, the employees of of the expression no problem. Yeah. Like I had a, a waiter uh, last week, I think it was, where he said, would you like some more water? And I said, no, thank you. And he said, no problem. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like if there's not an actual problem there using that expression, it's really an act of, of false heroism. Um, you know, wh wh why would that be a problem for you to put a little water in my glass? Um, but no, I feel you on the on the yeah people pulling up the 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 tent stakes and the tent poles at at four twenty five for four thirty closing. That's really that's sloppy. Although you know there could be. You know, it's once again, it's walking in the moccasins of the other person. It, it could be that there are entire dramas that we don't know about. It could be that that guy that you dealt with walked back to where the other waiters were and go and said, I just asked him if he wanted water. And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no problem. But I really don't feel good about how that happened. <laughs> it's very possible. 
Um, and he's probably writing a college application all about it. He, he could be getting um, a lot of pressure from his from the other people. What is it with the, your table where they don't want the water? What is what's going on with your table, Carl? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, he's got a whole syndrome, and it's in the DSM five, and it's about five pages long. Um, the uh, but yeah, the other thing that I was talking about with the pulling up of the stakes, and I ha- I have I watched this at a supermarket where they and it's really true where they have this fish counter, and around the time that they decide that everybody's probably got their dinner, they just start taking the fish off the ice. You know, it's probably which may be a good thing. Maybe the fish shouldn't sit out the on ice too long. But I'm watching it go, thinking. Well, no, I wanted to pick out some fish. What's happening here? And it's like he's looking at me like it's 6 p.m. If you were yeah. going to buy some fish and cook it, you would have done it by now. I'm putting the fish away. Yeah. No, I, it's just bad. It's a bad policy. And speaking of fish, did you see that news story about the the woman at the Publix grocery store in Florida? Yes. Who, yes, who tried to put the seven lobster tails down her pants and, <laughs> and got busted for it. Now, I hope this this lady intended to eat the lobsters. I mean, those are those are, those are quite elaborate measures to take in the name of feminine feminine hygiene. I hope she wasn't planning to serve anybody else the lobsters after they'd been down her pants for that length of time. It's um, true. That's bad yeah, manners, that... too. Although I think you and I noted her bail was $250, which is exactly the amount you would get if you found the at hidden cash by, uh, the bonus. By the way, the at hidden cash guy has tweeted at us, Henry, as a result of this conversation. Oh, no. Yeah, we're Does in he trouble. Hate us? He says, it's, it's a game. That's all. <laughs> and on that ominous note, Henry Alford, we have to go. The book, the most recent book is Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? Maybe in the case of the hidden cash guy, yes. A modern guide to Manners. Henry Alford, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Colin. All right, bye. Let's see. I regularly dream about the end of the world. My arm hair is translucent, and in my last job, I was fired for blasting Nickelback through the intercom. I only did it once. Well, let me that's... stop you there. Ms. Wolf, we really don't need to know about all that. And since you mentioned Nickelback, we're going to have to pass. Fair. That's fair. <laughs>